Chapters 19 and 20 of When Shadows Die. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Bridget Gage. Chapter 19. The Bitterness of Death. The doctor took the squire's arm and led him away from the door before he answered. She is doing as well as possible under the circumstances. All depends now on absolute quiet. It was for that reason I summoned a trained nurse and forbid any of the family to approach her. But what is the nature of her illness, doctor? She has received a severe mental shock. Of what nature? I do not know. Will, will she recover? With great care, I hope so. Can I go in, very quietly, and look upon her? Not if you speak to her, not if you waken her. I will neither speak to her nor waken her. You shall see how noiseless I can be. I am not going back to her room. I have all my patients to see yet. But I will call again in the afternoon. Dr. Hollis will remain a little longer, and the nurse, Mrs. Winder, can be relied on. "'If you enter the room, Mr. Force, let me entreat you to make no sound,' said Dr. Bolton, bowing, and passing the squire on his way downstairs. Mr. Force softly turned the handle of the lock, which had been oiled, and entered the room. On the bed, covered with a white counterpane up to her chin, lay the form of his fair wife, still and white as death. On one side of her sat the nurse.' On the other side stood the doctor. Mr. Force raised his finger in token that he did not mean to speak, nor expect to be spoken to, and so he approached the bed on tiptoe, and gazed upon the marble features, colorless except for the dark rings around the eyes and lips. As the husband gazed, a spasm of anguish convulsed his features. He turned his eyes from the face of his wife to that of the young doctor who stood over her. Dr. Hollis smiled and placed his finger on his lips. Abel Force understood both signs, and felt a little hope steal into his heart. He stood for some time longer gazing upon the beloved face, and then, at another sign of the doctor, he turned to steal noiselessly from the room. As he went from the bedside toward the door, his eyes fell on a large packet of paper, with a note tied on the top of it. And as he passed he took it up, thinking that it might be something that required to be sent to the post office. After leaving the room and closing the door softly behind him, he looked at the superscription of the packet, and it was this, To my dear husband, Abel Force, to be opened by him alone. The packet was sealed and tied with a cord, under which was slipped a letter directed simply to Abel Force, Esquire. When Mr. Force had looked at this packet, he showed neither surprise at its existence or impatience to read it. Without breaking the seal, he slipped it into his pocket and went quietly down to the parlor in search of his troubled young people. He found them all seated, as if they had been at a funeral. Odalite and Lee occupied one of the small sofas. Old Captain Grandier sat in a large armchair, with his little niece, Rosemary, on his knees, her head on his shoulder and her arms around his neck. She had sobbed herself into exhaustion, and therefore into quietness, and was listening calmly to the consolation the old skipper was trying to give her, and which was something like this. I tell you, my pet, he may be as stubborn as a mule, and hold his tongue until he loses the use of it. But I know that, not two months since, he was taken prisoner off my ship, along with me and all the crew, and so far from being the pirate's mate, he was the pirate's prisoner. I'll tell my own story, and it will clear Roland as sure as it will hang silver. This, in every form and variety of language, was the oft-repeated consolation that the old skipper was offering to his little niece, and not without effect. Elva and Wynnette were seated with the earl, who was talking to them in a low voice, 
and evidently trying to keep up their spirits. As soon as the squire entered the room, his daughters all hurried to meet him, with anxious looks. "'My dears,' he said, "'the doctors speak hopefully of your mother's condition. Let us be patient and trust in Providence. And for the present, my children, you must control your feelings and keep away from her room.' But this did not satisfy the daughters of Elfrida Force. They plied their father with questions. "'What is the matter with Mama? Did the doctors tell you what ails her? When will she get well?' how soon may we see her? And so forth, and so forth. Mr. Force answered these questions as well as he was able, but not at all satisfactorily. The old skipper broke in upon their talk. Force, I wish to the Lord you had ordered these girls down to breakfast. Here it is ten o'clock, and not one of us has had a mouthful. My dears, is that true? demanded their father. Oh, we could not touch any food, so long as we felt so anxious about dear mamma, answered Odalite, for the whole party. "'Come down at once. Lee, give Odalite your arm. Grandier, take care of Rosemary. Enderby, look after Wynnette. Come, my little Elva, under my own wing,' said the squire. And so the party of eight went down to the public breakfast-room. But in truth, no one but the earl, the old skipper, and the young lieutenant made any pretense of eating. The husband and daughters of Elfrida Force could not feed while the life of the wife and mother was in jeopardy. But they drank some strong coffee, which served to support their strength.' After breakfast, the young girls returned to the drawing-room, under the escort of the earl and the old captain, but Lee remained by the side of Abel Force, who walked toward the office of the hotel. "'The occupant of the little room adjoining our own has left this morning, and I wish to engage the apartment before anyone else takes it. For Lee, if the doctors will not allow me to remain in the same apartment with my suffering wife, I must at least be in the next one, if possible,' said Mr. Force, as he went up to the counter." The room was secured, and the two men turned to go upstairs together. "'Uncle,' said Lee, "'Odalite will not give me any answer. We'll not fix a day for our marriage until her mother recovers.' "'Odalite is right, Lee. How can she think of marriage, or of anything but her mother, at this crisis?' solemnly inquired Abelforce. "'Oh, Uncle, we have been so often disappointed, so often put off. It does seem as if fate were against us.' Don't be selfish, Lee. Think, my dear boy, what anxiety we are all suffering just now. I know it, uncle. I know it, and I share it. But how could our marriage affect the present circumstances? It could not increase the danger of my aunt, nor could it heighten our anxiety, pleaded the youth. My dear Lee, your passion blinds you to the fact that your marriage at this time would be deeply indecorous. Say no more about it, dear lad, until our beloved sufferer is out of danger." Lee sighed profoundly, but did not answer. "'Lee,' said the squire, in a low voice, to change the subject, "'have you told old Grandier why it is that Roland will not give evidence against the pirate captain, even to save himself?' "'Yes, I have told him that Roland has been persuaded by Silver, that he, Silver, is his, Roland's father. He said that he did not believe one word of it. He said that when the villain was down in Maryland, he must have heard the story of the young man having been saved in his infancy from the wreck of the carrier pigeon, without a mark on person or clothing to point to his parentage, and taken advantage of the circumstance to claim Roland as his son, and get him in his power. "'I think Grandier was right,' said Abelforce. When they re-entered the parlor, they found all their party present, idle and silent, because, in fact, they could settle themselves to neither occupation nor conversation— while their minds were so full of anxiety. Lee went and sat down beside Odalite. 
Mr. Force lingered a few moments in the room to bid his troubled daughters to trust in Providence and hope for the best. Then, telling them he was going up to sit in the room he had engaged adjoining their mother's, and that he might be found there if wanted, he left the parlor and went upstairs. First he stopped at the door of the side room and tapped lightly. The nurse came to answer the summons. "'How is she?' he whispered. The nurse came out and softly closed the door behind her before answering. She is sleeping quietly and must not be disturbed on any account. Thank you, that will do. I am going to sit in the next room. If I should be wanted, come to me there. Yes, sir, said the woman, returning noiselessly to the sick chamber and closing the door behind her. As Mr. Force turned away, his eyes fell upon the form of Rosemary Hedge moving silently as a spirit along the corridor. He went to her and whispered, "'What is it, my dear?' "'Nothing. I am only going to our room to put on my hat. "'Uncle Grandier is going to take me to see dear Roland,' replied the girl. "'Ah, that is right. God bless you, my dear,' said the squire, "'as Rosemary passed on to the large double-bedded room "'in the same corridor which was occupied by the four girls. "'Chapter Twenty: When Lovers Meet in Adverse Hour Rosemary quickly put on the olive-green linsey suit in which she had crossed the sea, and the little round traveling cap in which she had ridden to the city, and hurried downstairs to join her uncle. Her dress was not too warm for these late April days. "'Come, my little love,' said the old skipper, "'I could not find a carriage for you on the stand, nor even at the livery stable around the corner, so there is nothing for us but to pack ourselves into a moving black hole they call a street-car, or to walk.' I think by walking fast we could reach Capitol Hill sooner than by riding in one of these cars. Let us walk, by all means, promptly replied Rosemary. They went downstairs together, and set out for a brisk rate down Pennsylvania Avenue. It was a fine morning, with a bright sun, and a deep blue sky mottled lightly with feathery white clouds, as became an April day. You must keep up your heart, little girl, said the old man, as they walked on. I do try to do so. I have trust in the Lord— and under him, in you, Uncle Gideon. But, oh, when I think of how the news affected her, my heart almost dies in my breast, sighed the girl. Mrs. Force, do you mean? Yes, of course. But why? Oh, don't you see, if the news of Roland's danger affected her so greatly, his state must be very serious. My dear, Roland may have had nothing to do with the lady's attack. It looks to me as if it was an apoplectic fit, such as might have happened to any middle-aged man or woman, without any outside cause. Besides, I never heard of Mrs. Force taking the least interest in the young man, or even the slightest notice of him beyond mere civility. Yes, she did. I'm sure she did. I always thought, but indeed I hardly know why I thought so, that she was kinder to me on account of Roland. She always sympathized with me. And it was the news of Roland's peril that brought on her illness. I know it was. How do you know it, my dear? because I was watching her while Wynnette was reading the paper. I was almost ready to die with my trouble, and I was looking to her for help and comfort, because she always sympathized with me. And I saw her start, and her eyes grow wide and scared, and her face turn white. And then I saw her rise to leave the room. And then, but not till then, the others saw her and went to her, but she sent them all back. And I knew it was about Roland, and I thought there was no hope for him, and I fell to screaming." Oh, uncle, it was so very bad in me to go on screaming so, but I couldn't help it. I couldn't faint and forget all about it, like Amanda Fitzallen used to do when she couldn't stand things any longer. So I had to keep screaming. If I hadn't, I do think my heart would have bursted. 
It was all quite enough to frighten you into hysterics, my poor little girl, when I was not on hand to reassure you. But still, my dear, in future you must control yourself. There is nothing more contemptible in this world than a man or woman who cannot control himself or herself. But, uncle, my heart would have bursted if I hadn't screamed. Then, my dear, you should have let it burst rather than have screamed. This may seem harsh to you, my dear, but it is the best kindness. Self-control, my little girl, is one of the mightiest powers in this world. It is the soul of the ruler, my dear, said the old skipper. And having taken this text, he preached on it until they reached the foot of the Capitol Hill, and he lost his wind in climbing up it. In a short time, they reached the old Capitol prison. Captain Grandier had procured two passes, and armed with these, presented himself and his niece at the guarded door, and was permitted to enter. I know the way now, but let me take a long breath before I begin to climb all these stairs that are before us, said the old man, as he dropped upon a rude bench in the hall and began to wipe his face. Rosemary sat down beside him, and peeped charily through her green veil at the sentries that stood before the closed doors on each side of the hall. Presently the captain arose and told Rosemary to come along, and began to ascend the stairs. They went up three flights and found themselves on the third floor of the building in a wide passage, with closed doors guarded by sentries on each side. Walking between these, they reached the front end of the hall, where a small apartment had been made across it by a partition of wood. Before a rude door, a sentry stood. Captain Grandier showed his permits, and the soldier opened the door to let them pass. They entered the small room, which, however, had the advantage of a large window and of perfect cleanliness, of almost aggressive cleanliness, for everything smelt of fresh water and fresh whitewash. Roland Bayard sat on the side of his narrow cot, engaged in reading the morning paper. As his visitors entered the place, he looked up and gave a cry of mingled pleasure and reproach. "'Uncle! Rosemary! Oh, Rosemary! Oh, uncle, how could you? Why did you?' "'Roland, dear Roland, I couldn't help it. I wanted to see you so much. Oh, Roland, you are glad to see me, are you not?' pleaded Rosemary, going to him and putting both her hands on his shoulders, with all the innocent candor of her childhood. "'Glad to see you? Glad?' echoed the young man, in a broken voice as he took her tiny hands and pressed them to his heart and to his lips, while his hot tears fell upon them. Rosemary burst into a storm of tears and wept upon his shoulder. "'Oh, uncle!' reproachfully exclaimed Roland. "'Why did you bring this child here?' "'Because no power on earth would have kept her away. If I had not brought her, she would have done some deadly thing. She would have gone and got a pass for herself. She would have come here alone and exposed herself to insult on the way.' You don't know what desperate daredevils these little blue-eyed angels of our race can be, where their friends are in danger or in trouble, said the old man. And, oh, it is not only that I wanted to see you, said Rosemary, raising her tearful face from his shoulder, but I wanted to beg you for my sake, for my sake, Roland, to be just for yourself, to have mercy on yourself. You know, as we know, that you are not a pirate or a slave-stealer. You know, as we know, that you were taken prisoner by the pirates when the kitty was captured. "'Captain Grandier can testify to that, "'but he cannot swear that you never joined the pirate crew "'after you became their prisoner. "'He cannot swear that you never became the pirate captain's mate, "'as they charge you with being. "'Only you can tell what you did "'after recovering from your wounds on board the pirate ship. "'We know that you remained true to yourself and to your friends "'and to every principle of manhood and honesty, "'and we could swear that you did from our lifelong knowledge of you. "'But, oh, Roland, but, oh, Roland,' 
Such testimony would not be worth anything in a court of law, where moral conviction is not legal evidence. Oh, dear, dear Roland, take pity on yourself and on us, and testify to the facts that will vindicate you. These were her words, but no pen can give the pleading, prayerful, pathetic tones and looks and gestures with which they were uttered. The whole strong frame of the young man shook with the emotion that convulsed his soul. Rosemary, he said at length, in a broken voice, I am about to speak the words that must separate us forever. He paused, and she took up his cue. That you cannot do, Roland. Neither man nor angel can utter words which would separate us forever. In this world we may be parted, Roland, if such be your will. But not forever. Not forever, she said in her tender, vibrating tones. Rosemary, hear me. I cannot give the testimony that would vindicate myself, because the same testimony would convict Captain Silver. He will be convicted fast enough without your testimony, put in the old skipper. Then it would help to convict him, so I must not give it. But, oh, Roland, why should you care for that wicked man, that wickedest man in the whole world, pleaded Rosemary. Because, poor child, and now come the words that must part us, because I am his son. Rosemary stared in blank amazement, while she grew pale as ashes. You are no more his son than you are my son, and not half so much as you are Abel Force's son. Deuce take you, lad. Are you such a baby as to be beguiled by that man's lies? He found out your early history, and has made use of the facts, as well as the want of facts, to deceive you and claim you as his son to get you in his power, to make you his comrade if he could, and to tie your tongue in any case. Ah, you must be a blind bat indeed, not to see through him. Ah, Captain Grandier, old friend, you do not know. You do not know. Captain Silver has proved the truth of his story to me replied Roland, in a tone of despair. "'How has he proved this?' demanded the old skipper. "'I dare not tell you that. His story involves the—the the honor of another, of another family. I cannot breathe another word on this subject beyond the bare fact that I know myself to be Silver's son, and will not give testimony to convict my father. So much was due to you, and told that you may know why I will not testify. Then—blank, blank, blank—' The old skipper let off a volley of oaths that might have been highly effectual in a storm at sea, or a fight with pirates, but that fell upon Rosemary's delicate ears like claps of thunder, and made her put up her hands to shelter them. And he finished by saying, "'If I don't give a hint to the authorities, and have you put upon the stand and compelled to give evidence.' The young man made no reply, but turning to Rosemary, began to ask about their mutual friends. The girl answered all his questions to the best of her knowledge." This conversation lasted until the old skipper arose to take leave. "'Captain,' said Roland, "'my advice to you is to take Rosemary down to Maryland and leave her there with her friends. Washington, under present circumstances, is certainly no place for the child. "'I will not go, Roland. I will not stir from this city until I see you through this trouble,' said the girl. "'You hear that?' inquired the skipper. "'And you see that I could not get her away without turning Turk and tyrant?' and calling in the power of the law, and using force and violence to back up that? What can an old ruffian like me, even though I weigh two hundred pounds, and am the terror of the roughest crew afloat, do with the might of a blue-eyed angel? She'll do as she likes, if she dies for it, growled the skipper. You will let me come to see you every day, Roland, and in that way I can try to bear this, pleaded Rosemary. May the Lord bless you, my child, may the Lord bless you and keep you safe always, breathed Roland, as he folded her to his heart and kissed her, 
even as he had been accustomed to do when he was a little lad and she was a baby. And so the interview ended. End of chapter 20